0: Coming up on Philosophy Talk. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are
1: some things we do not know. It's good to know what you know and what you don't know. But bad to think you know when you don't. Why are you so cocksure of yourself? There are also unknown
2: unknowns. The ones we don't know we don't know. I know.
0: Don't be so dogmatic. I insist, do not be so dogmatic. Why is it arrogant to stand up for what you believe? Knowing what you don't know is the first step to wisdom. You think you know
1: everything because you got bit by a roach that crawled out of a dictionary.
0: Our guest is Baron Reed from Northwestern University. Knowing what we know and don't know. Coming up on Philosophy Talk.
3: Hi, I'm Josh Lampe.
4: And I'm Ray Briggs. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk.
3: Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website?
4: Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything.
3: Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to
4: Zeno, from anarchy to zen.
3: Become a subscriber today at
4: philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show.
1: Which is worse? Thinking you know more than you do. Or thinking that you know less than you do. How can we avoid both the arrogance of dogmatism and the paralysis of doubt? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Uh, Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm John Perry. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford, where John and I both teach philosophy.
0: Today, the first episode in a new six-part
1: series on the topic of intellectual humility. Now, people who are sure that they know everything, they often come across as intellectually arrogant. Who wants to be that person?
0: Yeah, but you think it's better to be so lacking in conviction that you never stand your ground? Well,
1: I say it's okay to be confident, but just not so confident that you become dogmatic.
0: And I say it's okay to be humble, but not so humble that you become a defeatist wimp.
1: So the secret to avoiding both dogmatism and defeatism is knowing what you know and what you don't know, our topic for today. Well, unfortunately, Ken, that's easier said than done.
0: The problem is that people tend to do everything they can to hold on to their beliefs. They shut themselves off from opposing points of view, dismiss sources of evidence that challenge or undermine their beliefs. If they're on Fox, they stay on Fox. If they're watching Rachel, they stay with Rachel. Surround themselves with like-minded people. It's a terrible recipe. It's a recipe for
1: closed-off groupthink, John.
0: Well, that's why you should seek out dissenting voices. We all need to have even our most firmly held beliefs challenged from time to time.
1: But you know, John, can't you get too much of that? I mean, for almost everything you believe, no matter how well-grounded your belief is, you can always find somebody who not only disagrees, but who will do everything they can to sow doubt. I mean, think of the climate change deniers, the Tobacco Institute, the creationists, all those people.
0: Well, you have to learn to recognize shysters, the paid merchants of doubt, and people that are dumb and ignorant, and have hidden agendas.
1: You don't have to listen to those people. Yeah, but wait a minute, wait a minute, John. You were just warning about the dangers of shutting off opposing points of view, weren't you? Well, yeah, but that means opposing
0: points of view with some scintilla of reason behind them. It doesn't mean you shouldn't separate genuine grounds for skepticism from spurious grounds for
1: skepticism. Now I I feel like turning the tables on you, John. I'm going to say, easier said than done, John. Touché, I guess. But what's your real point? Well, look, I don't believe in—I believe in climate change. I really do. But am I absolutely certain of it? Of, Of course not. Well,
0: I'm not certain of climate change on the basis of knowing climate science and having studied the data. But I'm much sure that the people who are denying it fall into the fraud and shyster and uneducated and denying camp. So I'm better at judging them than I am judging the climate. And so I'm pretty solidly believing in climate change. Why isn't that good enough if you
1: just have well-grounded beliefs? Because, John... It's precisely in the gap you know, that little gap between well-grounded belief on the one hand, and absolute certainty, that doubt lives, that the doubters get their hold. Oh, Ken, that, that
0: is so profound, that's so deeply profound, I, I'm just lost in the wisdom of what you said. Oh, wait a minute.
1: It's completely trivial! <laughs> oh no, 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 John. What I'm trying to say is that once you admit that you're not certain, haven't you just opened the door to the doubters? I mean, whether it comes from the people you want to dismiss, or from sources you're more, more to your liking, you're not allowed to shut the door to the doubters until they've had their final say
0: Yeah, you wait for the commercial that's nonsense the doubters never stop doubting and seldom stop talking that's what they do often that's what they're paid to do they tangle you up in interminable arguments they do the kellyan they pivot they twist they ignore your question in the end, at some point, you have to cut them off and get on with it.
1: Well, wait a minute, but but how? I, I okay, that sounds plausible, but I don't really see how that's consistent with your edict to not close yourself off to opposing points of view. How's well, that you, supposed to work? You
0: got to develop a skill. You got to strike a balance. Too little skepticism, and you become rigid and dogmatic. Too much skepticism, you become wishy-washy defeatists who won't take a stand.
1: Wait a minute. Okay, so. Tell me the formula for striking the balance, oh wise one. Well, tell well, me the formula.
0: I'm not sure there's a formula. It's a skill you need to develop. I think philosophers were supposed to help people develop the skill. And sometimes you might be looking for black and white, and then you have to realize the truth is also painted in shades of gray. Ah,
1: uh, you know what? I think I think you're just pretending I think you just don't know the formula. That's what I think.
0: Well, here's what I do know. We sent our roving philosophical reporter Shuka Kalantarian to explore a few cases where truth and knowledge really are painted in shades of gray. She files this report.
2: When it comes to knowledge of past events, it turns out the way I remember something can be very different than the way you remember it. And the way you remember things can change with time or it can be manipulated. Research shows that we have the ability to implant false memories into other people. UC Irvine's Elizabeth Loftus did a study showing just that. Here's a clip of her talking on Fora.TV.
3: Let's see if we can get people to develop a completely false childhood event that they were lost in a shopping mall, that they
0: were frightened and crying and lost for an extended time, that they were very upset, but that they were eventually rescued by an elderly person and reunited with
2: their family. 24 adults were recruited for the study. Psychologists asked the participants' parents for three real childhood memories and then made up a fake memory about getting lost in a shopping mall.
0: After three suggestive interviews with our
2: adult subjects, we found that a quarter of them fell sway to the suggestion and developed all or part of this made
3: up experience that developed a memory, at least partially or completely, of being
0: lost
2: in this particular way. The power of persuasion can actually change our memories. Then there's the power of faith, is there a God? Do we have souls? Can science give us this knowledge?
4: Physics can probe this for as long as they want. They'll, they'll never, no one will ever be able to empirically prove or disprove the existence of God.
2: Zach Krajasek is with Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network in Buffalo, New York. He says when science fails to give answers, you turn to faith. And through faith, you have knowledge.
4: Physics can tell us a lot about the physical world, but but i think when you get into questions of of metaphysics and you know where things originated how things came into being existence itself you have to get into a a plane that's above that into a supernatural plane
2: but science does give some absolute answers sometimes and when it gives answers that's knowledge right take climate change 97% of climate scientists believe climate change is real.
3: I think that there'll be little change here. It'll go up, it'll get a little cooler, it'll get a little warmer like it always has for millions of years. It'll get cooler, it'll get warmer, it's
2: called weather. That was then presidential candidate Donald Trump on Fox News in 2016. It turns out for many, climate change skepticism isn't about science. It's about political affinity.
3: I don't believe that what they say, I think it's a big scam for a lot of people to make a lot of money.
2: A 2016 study from the Center for American Progress Action Fund showed one-third of the U.S. Congress are climate deniers. Facts are facts, unless they're alternative facts. Plato once wrote, Opinion is the medium between knowledge and ignorance. Maybe the same goes for political opinion. Food for thought. For a philosophy talk. I'm Shuka Kalantari.
0: Thanks, Shuka, for that very interesting piece. Maybe Congress is the medium between ignorance and cable news. I'm John Perry.
1: With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. And today we're thinking about intellectual (laughs) humility, knowing what we know and what we don't know. We're joined now by Baron Reed. He's a professor of philosophy at Northwestern University. He's the author of The Long Road to Skepticism. Barron, welcome to Philosophy Talk.
0: Hi, thanks for having me. So Baron, uh, it, it's not surprising that you'd be interested in intellectual humility because you are an epistemologist by choice, by trade. But so let's go back a step. What made you want to devote your life, professional life, a significant part of your professional life, to thinking about what people know and how they know it, that is, to epistemology.
4: Oh, sure, I was not born an epistemologist, of course. I (laughs) I had to become one. So, like many young people, I first came to philosophy because I wanted answers to the big questions in life. What is the right way to live? What is goodness? What is the truth? And when I became an undergraduate, my first exposure to philosophy was um, early modern philosophy and the skeptical arguments of David Hume. That's dead white
0: guys, right? Well, yeah, philosophers mean by early modern philosophy Descartes, seventeen, sixteen, seventeen hundreds, 1700s, right?
4: Yeah, uh, 17th and 18th century. Um, It depends on what you mean by dead white guys. There are (laughs) certainly women philosophers in there who are uh, Mm. increasingly getting attention. And, of course, our understanding of what a white person is has changed over time as well. Okay, okay, okay.
1: Touche. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but they, they they captured your imagination. Yes.
4: Yeah, so I was exposed to the skeptical arguments of David Hume. And I remember one night in particular, I stayed up all night just in a mental crisis. And by the time the next day had come, I just felt my mental landscape was entirely different. So some of the things that you've said in the introduction are exactly right. When you threaten a person's worldview, when you threaten their sense of what reality is like, it is a deeply disturbing thing. And so, you know, Hume himself describes the skeptical crisis he had at the time he wrote the treatise as a young man, and it's something that you can pass through and come out on the other side.
1: So, so but uh, Baron, in, in the opening, John and I kind of searched in vain the quick answer. To, we try to strike a balance between this arrogance and defeatist, between too much certainty and too little. I mean, two quick yes. questions for you. So do you agree that we need a balance? Uh, and such, a fo- such a formula? And do you think there could be such a formula? What do, you, what do you think, really quickly?
4: Well, so there is no quick answer to that, unfortunately. And that's been one of the problems um, posed by people like the, uh, the merchants of doubt that you uh, mentioned earlier. So the problem is that we need to work through these questions, often on a question-by-question basis. And it's precisely looking for a, an exact formula that would apply in every situation that leads us to either um, end up with an arrogant dogmatism or retreat into a completely diffident skepticism.
1: So the answer is there's no formula. Is that right? I think that is right.
4: So, so uh, the the great philosopher Fred Dretzky said that knowledge is like being pregnant. You either are, you either are or you aren't. You either have knowledge or you don't. Um, although I think he's a great philosopher in many ways, I, I disagree with that point of view. I think that knowledge is actually many different things. And one of the problems is that we often will confuse one sort of knowledge for another, or we'll confuse one sort of request for knowledge for another. And that leaves us um, vulnerable to manipulation.
1: Yeah, I get that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. A lot of people think they know stuff. I mean, what got us started thinking about these shows, a lot of people think they know stuff. Uh, Trump, our president, said he knows more than the generals, right? (laughs) A lot of people think they know stuff when they don't really know stuff at all. Socrates was claimed to be the wisest man in Athens because he knew this one thing. He knew that what he didn't know. I mean, so uh, how do you convince people that they don't know everything they think they know?
4: Right, so that is often the start of a much longer conversation. <laughs> and in the case of Donald Trump, he's become very good at deflecting that further conversation. So you'll, I'm sure, have noticed that there's this uh, tendency he has when challenged to then retreat to saying, that's just what I was told. That's just the information that was given to me. Um, and that's meant to be a conversation stopper or a passing of responsibility to someone else. Tr- but, tr- of
0: course... You tr- Trump seems to be unique in that he often doesn't seem to believe what he knows. Well, he also doesn't know what he believes, I think. <laughs> yes, so there is that. But he's but, probably
1: a bit special. But he's an epistemologist's nightmare, is what <laughs> you guys are saying. Is that right?
4: Uh, yes. If you were looking for an embodiment of many of the worst
1: habits that people have, that would be one place to... Uh, to look. On that note, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about knowing what we know and what we don't know.
0: In our next segment, we'll dig deeper into our knowledge of knowledge. When do you really know what you think you know, how should you decide which doubts to dismiss and which doubts to embrace?
1: How to defeat both doubt and dogmatism when Philosophy Talk continues. Look at that bunch of cows. Not bunch, John, herd. Heard of what? Herd of cows. Well, of
0: course I've heard of cows. No,
1: no, a cow herd. Well, why do I care what a cow herd? I've got no secrets from cows. <laughs> but it's no secret that Philosophy Talk depends on donations from our listeners to help keep us on the air. So go make your donation at philosophytalk.org now. And question everything. Except if you heard it from a cow.
0: What's up with these arrogant Mr. Know-It-All's who don't seem to know what they don't know? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that
1: questions everything. Uh, except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. We're thinking about intellectual humility, knowing what we know and what we don't know.
0: Our guest is Baron Reed from Northwestern University.
1: So, Baron, you know, back during the Iraq War, Donald Rumsfeld... Was widely derided for his three part distinction between known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. And he claimed that it's the third one that can get you into all kinds of trouble. You know, he was widely derided for that, and I was no fan of Rumsfeld. But I actually think that was a great distinction. I wonder if, as an epistemologist, as a professional epistemologist, you agree.
4: Yes, I think that's definitely true. Um, you know, insofar as there was a problem with Rumsfeld, it was that. He mm-hmm. was perhaps using those epistemological categories to deflect criticism rather than using them to work through his uh, his situation. But, no, the idea of there being unknown unknowns is certainly a very uh, powerful one because those are often the, the ones where we have the hardest time knowing you know, how to move forward in our action. We don't even know what sort of evidence we should be looking for.
1: Right, but then, I mean, he says those are the ones that get you into trouble. I got him into trouble. Uh, well, yeah, why... Why should we be specially worry, worried about those? I mean, should we be always asking ourselves, is there something that I don't know? I mean, is that something we should always be asking? That seems a little yeah, so paranoid.
4: <laughs> it depends. Uh, so there are you know, very few things that we know with complete and total certainty, which means that for most of the things we take ourselves to know, we are constantly vulnerable to acquiring some new stream of evidence that shows we were wrong all along. Now, does this mean we should always be looking for those, you know, counter-streams of evidence? It depends. Um, You know, life is short. We have many demands on our time. So you have to be able to prioritize some questions over others. So some things we'll just take for granted for a while, but we do have to worry about slipping from taking something for granted to being completely blindsided when it turns out not to be true.
0: Well, I, I, I think the category of unknown unknowns is important to philosophy because, if if something is an unknown unknown, it means you haven't asked the question. If you ask the question, then you probably figure out that you know the answer or you don't know the answer. But if you haven't even asked the question, you don't know to ask the question. That's kind of where philosophy comes in. We think up new questions. Not not the world's most uh, profitable enterprise, but I think fairly useful. Do, do you think yes. that's right? I mean, that's an
1: interesting thought. That You have unknown unknowns typically where you haven't asked yourself a question that... Perhaps aren't to be asked. you think that's right?
4: I do. That's, I think, what philosophy has really come to specialize in, um, asking questions that we can't really provide answers to. Um, and so there is a tendency to dismiss the field as not making progress. Uh, you know, this is, you'll know from being professors, that there's this kind of constant, um, you know, pressure to state the impact of your work. And when you work in philosophy, you can't really yeah. measure things on a five or ten year scale but those questions end up being of crucial importance in in ways that you wouldn't really expect. So, for example... Go ahead, sorry. So, questions that come up in abstract logic have ended up proving important to the foundations of computer theory.
1: But I want to think about the design of a human mind for for a little bit, because I'm not sure that... I mean, I've been reading all this psychology. Psychologists, philosophers have been interested in this topic for a long time, but psychologists recently have gotten into... uh, Uh, you know doing experiments to figure out how intellectually arrogant or humble people are and and the results of the psychology are really depressing it is like the human mind is not designed to seek out counter uh, evidence to open itself up to conceptual it's like designed to form a belief hold on to the belief identify with that belief fight against I mean we're just a mess aren't we well that's part of the story
4: Um, you could think about this in you know as uh, two very complicated systems where one has gotten overlaid on top of the other so the first system is one where you are supposed to form beliefs quickly on the basis of limited evidence and the aims there are not so much directed at the truth as much as they are directed at survival and so for example this is why you know when you look at animals in the wild like squirrels and deer They'll startle at, at any sound. They're not really interested in the truth as to whether there's a predator there. They're just interested in getting out of there because there might be one. And so, you know, we have that aspect to our minds as well. But then overlaid on top of it is a much more careful way of thinking. And it takes a long time for that to sort of win out over the immediate impulse, but it can.
1: Well, let me ask you so, a question. I'm going to challenge you. I'm a Fox okay. News listener or <laughs> MSNBC news listener. And I, and I will not listen to the other because i have these rigid i i want you to convince me right here right now baron reed of the value of my opening up my mind to this this counterpoint of view
4: <laughs> okay so that's a difficult question um why is it that you should start listening to people who already uh, to people who already share a different point of view from you Well, I think one helpful way to do this is to go back and point out ways in which your own worldview has failed in some some sort of way. And usually a a hard and fast fact would help here. So, for example, if you're a Fox News listener and you have the belief that, say, the Republican Party is a party of fiscal responsibility, you can go (laughs) back and look at ways in which the the national deficit has increased much more um, under Republican administrations than under Democratic administrations. Okay, that doesn't settle the question because there's a context in which those choices have been made, but it should at least open up, you know, the possibility that you might need to rethink that, that kind of background assumption. And
0: we should mention there's plenty on the other side, too, right? Like Democrats oh, sure. are supposed to be the party of peace, but all the wars were started by Democrat presidents. That's right, and they're supposed to be the company that helps Except labor. Iraq. rock.
1: But you know what? Okay, I'm going to fight back. I'm still in my role as either the diehard liberal or the diehard conservative who listens only to... You know what? I think you're just trying to undermine me. I think you're just trying to convert me to being a Democrat. I think you're a snake. Why should <laughs> I trust your arguments, you snake? Yeah, you yeah. Come to think of it, Ken, you got... Wow, that's convincing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
4: well... So I think one of the things that is most helpful here is to emphasize that this is a shared project for all of us. It's not just that you need to do this, it's that we all need to do this together. And I think that the idea that we are embarked on a common project in which we have to um, make this democracy work for all of us um, is something that tends to get underemphasized. And you can tell there's a real um, possibility of, of danger lurking when you see the two sides in a democracy come so far apart that they only talk to themselves, and all of their attention is, you know, basically focused on getting out their own bases.
0: B- Baron, let me uh, go back to a question that came up with Shuka's piece. Uh, she had a, a minister on there who said, well, you know, when science doesn't give you an answer, that's, that's when it makes sense to rely on faith. I, I kind of agree with that. There's lots of things science doesn't give us answers on, or they give us answers that make no sense or aren't actionable, like, you know, now they're telling us time is an illusion. I don't think they got that right. So I'm just going to go on my faith that there is time. The problem is when people do that, when science does have an answer, that's what seems to be happening with climate change. But uh, what what's the test for what science knows and what science doesn't know, and when it's reasonable to turn to faith. I mean, Hume thought he had to turn to faith to go downstairs to get lunch, but I, I assume the line is a little different than that.
4: Yes, well, one of the difficulties with you know climate change, as one of the examples that came up earlier, is that um, there's been a group of people who have become very sophisticated at making use of what looks like scientific inquiry, to call it into question. And uh, there's a great book called The Merchants of Doubt that came out about uh, five or ten years ago where they drew a line between the people who are calling in a question climate change and the earlier group, many of them actually are the same, who called in a question whether smoking was dangerous. And uh, one of the lines in the book that comes from a, an ad executive for the tobacco companies is that doubt is our product. So, you know, in funding these scientific inquiries, they're not trying to actually prove that smoking is safe or that climate change isn't occurring. They're just trying to raise enough questions, raise enough dust so that the rest of us will call into question the results that the vast majority of scientists have, have reached. And the thing that makes this work so well is that there is a, a, a certain sort of legitimacy to their point of view. So go back to the smoking case for just a second. When the first court cases started to arise where people were suing the tobacco companies, The skeptics would say, look, you know, what kills any particular person is an extraordinarily complicated thing. You can't prove that the fact that this person smoked is the reason that, you know, he died from lung cancer. And you know, even the scientists who think smoking is dangerous have to concede, well, that's right. We can't really prove that. Now the thing is, some questions you need answers to and some you don't. And the people for whom doubt is their product have become very good at pointing to the questions we don't have answers to and they're steering us past the questions we do have answers well,
1: to. Well, but the, you, the, that's true. The, you're right. Uh, you've characterized that well, but the, why, why isn't that legitimate? Because if knowledge is about – you, o- you could think you only have knowledge when there's an absence of doubt, and the merchants of doubt are the people who go around and say, ah, but there isn't an absence of doubt. Uh, here, here is the doubt. And are you saying I can have knowledge even though uh, there's not an absence of doubt? Is that what you're suggesting?
4: Yes, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. And that's, I think, the big move that epistemologists need to make to help this sort of uh, problem you know, be manageable. So to go back to what I was uh, quoting from Dretzky, his view is that knowledge is basically just one thing. So you either have it or you don't. Now, that's the real problem, because any time doubt can be raised, if doubt excludes knowledge, then these doubts will always mean that you have nothing to work with. I think this makes the
1: problem even harder, dude.
4: (laughs) No, no, no. If you have many different degrees of knowledge where these can be um, better or worse supported by evidence, then there will be cases in which knowledge is sufficient for action in some circumstances but not in others. So let me give a a very quick example. Um, You might have someone who is in bomb technician school. And he's studying for his test and he learns that for, you know, uh, let's say bomb of type X, what you need to do is cut the blue wire, okay? And as he's studying, he comes to know this reasonably well on the basis of his memory and his grasp of the principles. And so he passes his test. He knows it well enough to give an answer on the test. But now when he's out in the field and he's trying to actually diffuse a live bomb of type X, It seems that he needs to have an even higher degree of certainty. He needs to know even better than he did for the test. And so at that point, he might hesitate and call for assistance. You know, are you really sure that this, the the blue wire is the one I should cut here? So this is just the idea, basically, that our practical circumstances might require more or less certainty, depending on what's yeah, at stake. Right. Good right, point.
1: Good point, good point. Uh, we, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're, t- we're talking about knowing what you know and what you don't know. We'd love to have you join this conversation. Brenda from San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Brenda.
2: Yes, good morning, John and Ken. Thank you for a wonderful show again.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I have a question that really has bothered me uh it seems to come up when i talk to family members but we'll be speaking about the past uh for example something that happened to me personally and they'll say no that happened to me so they start speaking in first person uh can <laughs> you please uh offer me some <laughs> some some Advice or what your yeah. what your comments are on the Yeah, uh, There you go. And I'll, good. Take, I'll take your comments off the air. Thanks again.
1: Brenda, that's a really good question. My, you know, I have to tell you, my wife accuses me of stuff like this all the time. She said, you made that up? And I said, no, no, that really happened. She said, no, that happened to me. That didn't happen to you. So, <laughs> I mean, our memories, uh, Baron. Are not very reliable. So
0: would you be willing to loan Claire to Donald Trump for a <laughs> yeah. little while no. so, so he could get <laughs> some of that treatment?
1: Yeah. So uh, our memories yeah. turn out not to be all that reliable. And that's one of the main sources of how we know things or think we know things. So what do we do about that, the unreliability right. well, of thing, memory?
4: Well, one thing we need to do is to better understand the the ways in which our memories tend to be unreliable um recent research seems to show that what we do is we when we recall something we then overwrite that memory with what we are thinking at the at that present time and so our pasts, in fact really are malleable in this sense um you can give the a different emotional tenor to the memories that you had before you tend to pick out certain details and drop others so one thing that you know is really a good idea for everyone is to keep a, a diary you know write down the things that happen at the time and your impressions of them at the time and then you'll see later um, the ways in which you tend to misremember
0: them. That assumes you'll
1: see them later if you remember where you put the diary on. <laughs> <Yeah, well. laughs> that's a good bit of practical advice. So, so you're an epistemologist. We think of epistemology as a kind of theoretical undertaking, but there you just gave us some practical advice. But I want to ask you another thing in, in relation to that. I mean, if you look at how you said there are these kind of two systems. There's this slow... Uh, more reliable system in the human brain than there's this fast, quick and dirty thing. Uh, And I wonder if you think, I mean, is there a, I mean, we rely on this quick and dirty thing, I think, a whole bunch, even though we're not on the savanna anymore. Is there some way we can discipline ourselves that you can recommend to us that, you know, slow down? I mean, because if you look at human cognition, like I said, it's all over the map. Uh, All the people, some of the most uninformed people in the world, the people who think they know things because they heard it on some news network or read it in some magazine, but it's not so. How do you combat that?
4: That's right. Well, it does take, I think, careful thought. You know, there are um, systematic ways of thinking that can minimize that sort of thing. Uh, in the same way that you can train your memory to be more accurate and more powerful, so too you can train yourself to be more critical of your own beliefs. And, you know, one way of doing that is to ensure that you always know not only why you think what you think, but why people who are opposed you think what they think. So if you have both perspectives in mind, you can see the strengths and weaknesses of both.
1: Yeah, but that's tricky, isn't it? Because here is one of the things people tend to do with uh, countervailing evidence to things beliefs they hold de- dear. They tend to uh, de- uh, degrade, to de- dismiss uh, the the countervailing source of evidence as untrustworthy, as as you know, as a snake, as I was saying. I mean, how do you combat that tendency to take the countervailing source of evidence at face value? People don't have the tendency to do that.
4: Right. Well, you know, this is one of the ways in which philosophy actually is one of the most practically useful um, things you could learn at the university. So when I give my students an assignment, I tell them that they need to come up with the best argument they can for their own point of view. And then they need to come up with the best objection to it. And they should write that section as though their grade depends on it because it actually does. (laughs) And so (laughs) once they've been able to do that, um, they're in a much better position to not only um, understand the full scope of alternatives, but they've been much more convincing themselves. We so always try to give people a self-interested uh, motive for action. Right. So I tell them basically, if you can you know, state the objection to your own view better than the people you're arguing against, they'll be fully convinced by your presentation of their objection. Okay, so then um, when you show you have an answer to it, it'll be you know, much more convincing. So
1: I'm going to make every American take an epistemology class. That's what we're going to do. You're listening to <laughs> Philosophy Talk. We're asking about intellectual humility with Baron Reed from Northwestern University.
0: In our final segment, we'll explore some practical steps for avoiding both dogmatism and defeatism.
1: Achieving our humility when Philosophy Talk continues. Can each day, millions of people go to sleep hungry. Hungry for new ideas, John, for new approaches, new thinking, and new philosophies. Where can they turn? That's where you, our listeners, come in. For a small donation to Philosophy Talk, you can help feed that hunger. For the cost of one cup of coffee a day, you can help keep Philosophy Talk on the air and online. Go donate now at philosophytalk.org.
0: And help feed the world's hunger for thought. When you only perceive what you already believe, how do you know what you really know? I'm John Perry and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything.
1: Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Baron Reed from Northwestern University, and we're thinking about knowing what we know and what we don't know.
0: Baron, uh we've seem to have arrived at a consensus that there's no neat formula for striking just the right balance between too much conviction and too much doubt. But can you give us at least some rules of thumb for, for, that, w- that we can use to get by? Sure. So I mentioned before
4: that one of the benefits of a philosophy class or philosophy assignments is that you have to give both sides as convincingly as possible. Um, but there's another sort of um, change to the way education is done that I think would be very effective. So I have uh, two children in high school right now, so I see the sorts of writing assignments they're given. And the emphasis, since Common Core uh, standards became prominent, has been on evidence-based writing. So they'll give a packet of documents, and you're supposed to draw from that the evidence that you need to support your conclusion. Now that's better than not having evidence for your conclusion, but to leave it just at that is in some ways to reinforce the sort of confirmation bias that Ken was talking about in the previous section. So I think that one thing that we might try um, pedagogically is to rework some of these assignments. So, for example, um, have the students write the assignment on the basis of the packets they get and then have them rewrite it where you've given them new evidence that contradicts the old evidence or you subtract some of the evidence that you gave them the first time and say that's no longer usable. And then you need to challenge the students to think through their point of view again. Don't just look for new evidence to support a view you already came to. You need to, you know, start over and see if you still agree with with this point of view. That
1: seems that seems those seem like uh, very good pedagogical techniques, and uh, they might well be effective in uh, making the young better than the the uh, older and middle aged than old, old among us. But I'm wondering about uh, public discourse. I'm deeply pessimistic about public discourse because, you know, I I love philosophy. I, I do philosophy for a living. And I want philosophy to reach out to the public square and ameliorate it. I, I want philosophy not just to interpret the world, but to change the world. That's partly why I do philosophy talk. But I look at public discourse. And I, and I look how manipulative the politicians are. I look how mendacious so much of the news, news coverage, how uncourageous and unquestioning. What, how can we ameliorate now, here and now, do you have any rules of thumb that I can we can give to citizens to not let themselves be so pushed around by these manipulative uh, politicians, merchants of doubt, to survey purveyors of lies and falsehoods?
4: Yes, well, I do think that there are particular pockets of expertise where you can, you know, make this push a little bit more quickly than with others. So, for example, I would think that it shouldn't be too hard. Um, you know, well, relatively speaking, to push to have people like prosecutors and police investigators also work explicitly on acquiring this sort of skill. Um, that's been a problem with false convictions in this country. You know, um, police will, you know, figure out who a suspect is on the basis of eyewitness testimony that later gets recanted. They don't right. go back and rethink, you know, who's actually responsible for this. Um, More broadly, you know, I would expect that you might be able to um, push for this sort of expertise being taught in journalism schools and, um, you know, ensure that journalists are trained to kind of engage in this even-handed reasoning, not the sort of false equivalence where they say, on the one hand, some people say this, on the other hand, some people say that, but to push a little bit deeper and find the underlying reasons between them. Um, And then once that sort of assessment has been made, not to be afraid to take a stand, Um, but always to be willing to walk it back and rethink it.
1: So I I think you got two good points there. I mean, we should work on the young and try to improve their education. We should work on people whose expertise we rely on, like prosecutors, police, journalists, to make them more questioning types, more more less gullible, sufficiently skeptical, but not too skeptical. Uh, What about the rest of us ordinary citizens now? You got any, I mean, I like those two things, but I'm still worried about the citizen.
4: Yes. Well, the citizen, you know, as such, is a much more difficult uh, thing to work on because, you know, in our country, we don't force people to go through re-education programs or anything like that. That sounds like um, communist China, dude.
1: <laughs> it does. <laughs>
4: it does. So, you know, we've we've tended to avoid that sort of thing. Um but I do think that one thing that, w- that we really should do in our country is revive the idea that the democratic project itself is something of you know the utmost importance. There's been a tendency for us to prioritize finding jobs and taking part in the economy um, when we think about education and the obligations each of us has. And then we have you know really de-emphasized the idea that we're responsible to each other for the views that we have and for coming to agreement on how we're going to make this, this whole project work. So, you know, there's something like a kind of secular religion that has flourished at various times in our country, and it's really on the the downswing now. So, you know, to whatever extent we can, we should try to revive that.
0: We've got got an email here from Sam in Saratoga. He says, uh, in this segment, you're looking for practical advice. I'll give you some. Pay no attention to philosophers. I took a philosophy course, and as far as I can see, philosophers don't have any understanding of why we know that there's an external world. They barely are willing to admit that we exist. They have no account of how we know about the past. They don't know what time is. They don't know what the difference between good and bad (laughs) is. I enjoy your show, but one thing I'm not waiting breathlessly for philosophers to do is to improve the world, as Ken seems to think they can.
1: Well, Sam, (laughs) what do you think of that, Baron?
4: (laughs) Well, that is uh, a challenge. You know, it sounds like some of my teaching evaluations. Um, (laughs) You know, you you do get this um, reaction sometimes to the uncertainty that you find in philosophy. This idea that we don't have any definite answers. We didn't learn anything. What is the point of the whole thing? But I do think that you know, to go back to one of the things we were saying earlier, raising the questions and appreciating them for the the serious challenges they are is half the battle, if not more, in philosophy. so if you remove those questions and those objections that get raised, you find that people are much more susceptible to being you know swayed by uh, demagogue demagogic leaders who give very easy answers. you find people um, engaging in persecution of one another um so philosophy I think has been very much a human you know a force for you know, humanizing for making humane people.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you, Baron. And uh, Sam, I say, I, I want to take you out to the woodshed. And uh, uh, because <laughs> uh, it's, it's one thing, you can think of philosophy as a substantive set of doctrines about things. And I will grant you. The, the philosophy is not like science where it just accumulates truths and say, okay, here are the accumulated truths, although I think we do a good job of, at accumulating some truth, but at the, at the bottom, what's really important about philosophy is the attitude, right, and, and the, the orientation toward the world, the questioning attitude, like we say we question everything, and that's, I think, really important. For, for philosophy is sort of the adolescence, well, how do you know that? What, what do you get off, where do you get off saying that? That's, I think that's really important.
0: I, I think Sam's problem is he, he quit after the introductory course. Yeah, that's what yeah. I think. <laughs> hang, hang in there. He'd meet some philosophers <laughs> that a, think they know a lot. We
1: got a tweet from, uh, was this? Annie Kainer on uh, Twitter, I guess. People seem to believe something as long as you repeat it often enough. It's been working for Donald Trump. Well, that she doesn't put a quest in there. But it's true that rep- re- repetition, especially with conviction, convinces people. What do you do about that? You're not going to change that, are you?
4: Well, you know, the the thing to do is really to keep in mind that you're in it for the long haul. Um, you know, if you look at the course of the Enlightenment, um the transformation that people were able to effect on the basis of these philosophical ideas having to do with liberty and democracy took decades, if not centuries, to come into play. So there's always going to be a conflict between people who are trying to argue on the basis of reason and argumentation on the one hand, and people who try to use these sort of sub-rational techniques like repetition or propaganda on the other.
1: We've got another tweet from Joanne and somebody else. Joanne in San Francisco, I think it's a tweet. Uh, And I think this is really important because it says something about the kind of cognitive environment in which we now operate. And this should be interesting to you as as uh, as a... Epistemologists. It's all well and good to formulate arguments based on ve- fact-based evidence, Joanne says. But with so much fake news floating around, how is the average person supposed to sort out the real from the alternative facts? That's like if we were in fake barn country and there were all these fake barns. I mean, there's all this fake news around. There's all this unreliable information around. What are we supposed to do?
4: That's right. So one of the things that is more important now than ever is you know, the ability to identify sources that are credible. Now, that doesn't mean that they're infallible, but they are typically going to be sources that will publish corrections of their own um, mistakes in the past. They are sources that will, uh, you know, try to be even-handed in the sense that they'll give you a sense of what the other side is thinking. Um, they are sources that will provide argumentation and documentation. Um, they'll call into question assertions that are made without, you know, being backed up. So as citizens, we do need to become educated as as to how to pick the sources that, that really are going to fulfill those functions.
1: So that means in the, in the 21st century, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know is like much harder work, because there are a lot more charlatans and purveyors of falsehood around, and so that puts the burden on you not to be so trusting, not to be so gullible, not to be, right?
4: That's right. It's become much easier you know, with uh, technology advancing the way that it has. It's become much easier for people to put together websites that look professional even though they aren't really. And so we do need to have a, a critical eye when we take a look at things that we gain from, from other
1: people. So, Baron, on that sort of depressing note, <laughs> I'm going to have to say uh, <laughs> goodbye to you. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I'd like to have you back sometimes, so and we can talk about how to cope with the information pollution that we face. But thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you. It was my pleasure.
1: Our guest has been Baron Reed. He's a professor of philosophy at Northwestern University. He's author of The Long Road to Skepticism. So John, what's your your final thought for us here?
0: Well, you know, uh, we think of technology as making life easier. But when we think about it epistemologically, it's making life more difficult because it's undermining evidence that we evolve to trust. Uh, Now, when you hear a person's voice, Since tape recorders, you can't be sure that that person is saying those things now. Uh, Now when you see something, uh, it's much easier to get something out on on the web and that means that seeing something that a lot of people agree and have fancy quotes for doesn't mean what it used to be when those people would have to have kind of been hired by some kind of reputable organization. So it's all very depressing. It is
1: very depressing. It's very challenging. I mean, there's an upside to it because this technology also enables us to, as it were, pool our cognitive resources. I mean, what you see over there, Mm -hmm. right, you can transmit to me at a long distance so I can know what's going going on over there when, when I couldn't know that before except by being yeah, there how, I,
0: how would you have known that obama had uh trump wired, wiretapped exactly. if it, if it weren't for the internet
1: yeah so it, there's a good side there's an upside to it but there is also a downside to it and here's the thing we haven't thought about uh, how do we get the good how do we balance out the good with the bad and should we should we you know is it the, does does the good outweigh the bad it's not clear to me at all that the answer is yes but you know This conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is Cogito Ergo blogo." I think, and therefore I blog. And you too can become a partner in that community just by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, here's a guy who's so humble about what he knows and doesn't know that he says it
0: all as fast as possible. It's Ian Scholes, the 60-Second Philosopher.
3: Ian Schultz, William Butler Yeats' poem, The Second Coming, is often said these days, this bit anyway, quote, The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity, unquote. That's us all over, say the pundits. That's the 21st century right there. The ceremony of innocence is over, and the drowned are all calling for Ubers. All the rough beast is slouching, that's for sure, but Bethlehem's booked up, and I think we're all full of passionate intensity, and we all, right, left, and indifferent, have conviction up the wazoo, even though wazoo's themselves have been outsourced since 1999. Convictions that used to be just the idle topics of stone speculation have entered the mainstream, like... Who killed JFK? Your conclusion could be the Mafia, the Cubans, the Russians, the CIA, or some combination thereof. But the simple truth, that Lee Harvey Oswald did it on a whim, is the one answer that nobody believes. At least not with passionate intensity. We must face it. We're saps. We're suckers. We got into the Spanish-American War because a battleship blew up in Havana Harbor, and the media convinced us, without evidence, Spain had done it. We got into the Vietnam War because we were told Vietnamese gunboats had attacked a U.S. destroyer in the Gulf of Tonkin. We went to war with Iraq because Saddam Hussein told us he did not have weapons of mass destruction, and we knew what a liar he was. Thank God that's over. We are told all kinds of tales about Hillary Clinton. Google Crooked Hillary, Pizzagate, or George Soros paid protesters. You will enter a vast fantasy land of alternative facts, propaganda for war that is only being fought on couches. It was told to us not long ago that the Internet would bring us all together in a global melting pot of shared knowledge. This is has not happened. Instead, we are a global network of niche markets. Hobbyists, fetishists, revolutionaries, lobbyists, a world of communities, you might say, with not a community in sight. We are collapsing on ourselves, not expanding our horizons. Algorithms track what we do and give us what we want to see. So it's not so much we don't believe in global warming or evolution or that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. It's that those beliefs are counter to what makes us us. We want to keep driving. We want to be boss of our own destiny. We want to think there are vast conspiracies killing our leaders because that provides more interesting dinner conversation than professional sports. President Trump is, of course, king of our new reality, which is whatever we say it is. My favorite thing he has done is when he accused then-President Obama of tapping his phones at Trump Tower. Of course, the old-school mainstream media, what Trump likes to call fake news for some reason, didn't call him a liar as such, but said there was no evidence the conservative news outlets on the other hand at least breitbart and radio personality mark levin are the ones that gave him the idea that obama spied on him in the first place the trouble with conspiracy mongering is it only goes so far it makes for stone conversations truck stop or coffee shop fodder drunken rap sessions just at closing time but at some point google will fail you the experts will not return your calls like the buck conspiracy has to stop at the president i think i mean if president trump really thinks obama tapped his phone come on he's the president ask the cia the fbi the nsa did that really happen or am i just crazy he is the boss of them right if he's not in charge who is well the illuminati of course duh what was i thinking of course trump can't tell us that obviously we can't handle the truth i gotta go Philosophy Talk is a
0: presentation of KALW, local public radio San Francisco, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, Copyright 2017. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. Our senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Audrey Dilling, and Colin Peden. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University, and from the partners at our online community of thinkers.
1: The views expressed or mis-expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders, not even when they're true and reasonable.
0: The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you, too, And become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.
2: Joey, do they know that we know? No. Joey?
1: They know you know.
2: Oh, I knew it!
0: Hey, you made it to the end of the show. Not everybody does. That means you must really like us, so help us. How can you help us? Go to philosophytalk.org, look for the I Will Help button,
1: click it, and get ready to help. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you so much for donating.